Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast featuring me, Mike Calvin, Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst, and Seb Stafford Bloor from Football 365. This will be a key week for football. The government clearly wants the game to restart, but there's no easy way through a complex, ever-changing crisis. Self-interest is one of the few things that hasn't changed. Let's take the controversial subject of B-teams. Other, bigger decisions have to be made, but big clubs still want to insert them into the pyramid structure. Does the plight of the lower league clubs give them a chance to force the issue? Will they use their financial muscle to get what they want? With bankruptcy looming, will that be seen as the lesser of two evils? What do you think, Aid? <laughs> I, I think that your, your question, your thoughts, is definitely has logic and some merit. I, I think that's something that will be considered, especially if the Premier League does continue and the season's completed and they don't lose billions of pounds, then they may well put together a package to help the EFL. And in that, there may be a proviso whereby they are forced in the EFL to to bring in BTs. Personally, I hate the notion. I really, really don't like it. I don't think that's what English football, the pyramid has has been about down the years, The, the lower league competition currently known as the leasing.com, I think has been destroyed really by introduction of B teams or, or under 23 teams. And yeah, I, I would hate to see it happen. I, d- I don't think it's impossible though, if the Premier League do, do inject a lot of money into the EFL. And if we lose a handful of clubs, there, there's that possibility, of course, that gaps need to be filled. Personally, I hope that the future looks a little bit more like this, whereby a League One and League Two club might have just 10, 12 registered players. And in terms of senior players, the rest of their squad's made up of of kids that are youth team players practically and the loan system to maybe be expanded, whereby you can have five, six, seven loan players within your squad. I hope that that is maybe more of the future rather than a B team if if the plight of the EFL is as serious as we fear. Yeah, you know, I share your opposition to the concept of B teams and you know we've seen that it is a running sore within the game both in terms of, of certain clubs but also fans who seem to be, you know, completely opposed to it for understandable reasons. I just want Seb though to almost put the other side of the argument. Now, we were in a, a crisis situation. It's an, a yet another big day today. Later on, the Premier League clubs are meeting, UEFA are meeting. There's a lot of talk about the split between 
the bottom six and the rest of the Premier League, all that's going to play out. To get through this, some people are going to not just think the unthinkable, but act on the unthinkable. Do you understand that logic? To an extent. I mean, I don't really get a sense for where we're headed, Mike. To progress, we're going to have to come up with some kind of compromise in terms of what certain teams will accept how their future will be shaped, for instance. But there doesn't seem to be any appetite for that. At the moment, we don't exist in a conciliatory environment. So every new day that arrives, there's a different argument being put forward. And, you know, I said on our last episode, I want to hear more from the clubs themselves. So I can't complain that Scott Duxbury spoken out over the weekend. And I guess over the next couple of days, we'll hear more from more Premier League chief executives and chairman and owners. Maybe I'll just, I'll punt this question straight back to you. Where is the compromise actually going to come from? It, because it's one thing to talk about football league clubs who are really over a barrel and they don't have a choice. The football league themselves are, as Adrian said, they're kind of going to be at the risk of a B team initiative because of the, the sort of the, the false allure of having Premier League clubs drop down into their competition. But at the, at the highest level of the game, how are we going to move forward with seemingly no appetite from anywhere for anybody to accept anything that they don't want. I don't understand it, it needs leadership. the way forward. It needs, it needs strong leadership, doesn't it? It needs somebody in a position of power or, or those that hold the, the most power here, the, the Premier League, along with the FA, to come up with a plan that they see as the fairest compromise. You're never going to please everybody. I think that much is clear. It's going to be an imperfect end to the season if we have it. Someone has to devise what they regard as the fairest possible compromise plan and you vote on it. And if there are not enough votes to pass that, I think the league, that the threat has to be that the league finishes and that we don't complete it. I don't see any other way because they're just going to keep squabbling. We want this, but we want this. No, that, that's not for us. But what hey, about, hey, what about are you not worried that there are, there are clearly some clubs out there that are that very much want the league cancelled. Mm. I mean, I, I, I mean I'm mean, i not trying to um, mm. to put words in anybody's mouth, but mm. over the weekend, I... Yeah, but they don't want billions lost, though, do they? They don't, but at the same time, I think they would rather accept the short-term loss for, the, you know, when the threat of relegation is there. I heard Christian Perzo over the weekend say that there should be some mechanism by which if Aston Villa's best players contract the virus, then they shouldn't have to play. It's just like, wake up. We've had six weeks where people have said... This is about health. This is about safety. This is about protecting people, whether it be players, medics, staff, whatever. And all of a sudden, we have people making arguments like that. I think it's, I, 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 I don't, if anything, we're further away from moving forward than we were a month ago. Yeah, um, but isn't that the, the problem? Uh, that football, as it's currently constituted, is based upon self-interest yeah. and compromise is an alien concept to people so everyone's going to be looking after one another we've already seen the premier league clubs squabbling like ferrets in a sack now you know let's throw it forward a little bit if we could it seems a very well sourced story in the athletic that there's a probable decision probably going to be ratified in the next couple of days the seasons in league one and league two will be cancelled now i find that abhorrent I'm sure there will be legal objections. I know Dara McAntony at, at Peterborough has already said there's going to, he's going to be lawyered up very, very soon. <laughs> Where are we going to go with this, Aid? You know, mm. you, you, you know a lot about the, the lower mm. leagues. Mm. 
is this the right thing to do? No, well, no, I, I don't think it's, well, it's... It's hard to know what's the right and wrong thing to do. But but personally, I think the EFL should just keep their powder dry. I think they should sit tight on this and wait to see what the Premier League do. Because if, you know, that, that huge amount of money from TV, if it is assured and they do agree to find a way to complete the season, then I'm, I feel compelled that, that there will be a gesture, there will be a package that comes down to help the EFL survive. Now, if, if that doesn't come, then I think it's inevitable that, that, that this season would have to be cancelled on the basis that, that they can't afford, with no income, to pay their players to, and they can't afford to put on the, to put on the games. It's, it, I, look, in a sporting sense, it is abhorrent, you're right. But if they can't, if they've got no income, I don't see how it can function. So, so personally, I, I, I would wait for the Premier League to, to sort themselves out and I guess under the proviso that they will be given some kind of package financially, if, if that's the case. We'll have to wait and see. And then, of course, we get into how Leagues 1 and Leagues 2 are decided. I'm sure that's your next question. Yeah, um, you're spot on, mate. You've been, you've been looking at my notes. Yeah, um. just, I mean, that, that opens up a minefield, doesn't it? I mean, what's the fairest method there? We probably won't agree between ourselves. For me, I don't like weighted home and away points per game scenarios because it's guesswork. Some teams are strong at home, some are stronger away. I think that's unfair. I actually think a straightforward, and I know that some teams have played more at home and, uh, than others, but a straightforward points per game is the only way that I think it, it should be decided. But that's my view. Yeah, yeah, I, you know, I tend to agree with that. You know, When you think of it, under the system, and I think they are going to do this points per game weighted home and away if they do go through with the, the cancellation. You know, that in League One, for instance, will mean big clubs like Portsmouth, Sunderland missing out even on a playoff. And therefore, there will be implications from that. I just can't see how any club could tolerate something that they would perceive to be unfair you know they'd have to fight it, wouldn't they? So we've got basically the prospect of a of an outbreak of civil war in leagues one and two, stretching <laughs> over the next three to six months. Oh dear! Well, absolutely. I, I think we've got a living example of this already, Mike. So the situation in France is obviously mandated by government, and Ligue 1 was decided on a points per game basis. Now, along with the arguments that you've already made about you know home and away waiting. Jean-Michel Aulas, the uh, Lyon president over the uh, couple of days ago, just for the, the start of the weekend, said, well, you know, traditionally, we're one of those clubs that, that finished the league very, very strongly. <laughs> you know, our, our best period of the year is March to March to May. And what he says kind of stands up that that's it's not it's not empty rhetoric. Mm. But the arguments that the clubs can make against this are endless. And you better believe that uh, there's going to be a legal challenge. And we're, we're also, also left with, whilst I know it's not really the priority at the moment, we're also left with a situation where, theoretically, teams who are relegated, for instance, and teams who have stated objections against the mechanism which has relegated them, what happens if someone arrives in League Two and says, right, well, we're not going to take the field? Because to do that is to offer some sort of tacit approval of what's happened. So we're just gonna we're just gonna sit out and wait for I don't know the court of arbitration for sport to to, to it, it's it's it makes it worse. Uh, you have to come up with a compromise that people accept now. You cannot just 
you cannot just enforce something because people are going to make it much harder going forward. Do you think um, that, that people would accept or clubs would accept, let's say we go down the straightforward points per game route. You have the, the two up, for example, from the championship, but the third place would still be decided by playoffs. Now, surely we can put on three games, if the, especially if the Premier League is happening. Surely we can put on third at home to sixth, fourth at home to fifth, one-off games, and then a final. Uh, then, surely that 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 decision is slightly more palatable because it does open the door for 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 those that may feel slightly aggrieved that they didn't they didn't claim that that third spot. And and maybe maybe just maybe we could we could do that at the bottom end of the table as as well. I don't know. Um, isn't there going to be someone that, that jumps in with their own grievance? I mean, <laughs> football is a game of self-interest. It is a a game run by opportunists at almost every level, there will be someone with a real or confected objection that causes a problem, regardless of the situation. Unless you finish the, the season as normal with the full calendar completed, somebody is going to instruct a lawyer at some point. Yeah. I just can't I, see yeah, a way around that. That's you know the reality of the situation, isn't it, Seb? And you know, I suppose if we're looking for things that maybe could unite people... Let's think of a, a couple of the decisions that have been made already. One, the temporary shelving of VAR. Now, if the budget ran to it, I'd put an insert of the Alleluia chorus in here. <laughs> you know, let's make it permanent. Do you think my enthusiasm for its shelving or scrapping is actually shared across the game? What do you reckon, Aid? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't share it. I don't. I, I mean, no, no. I, I, like, VAR, VAR has not been, has not been, it's been more of a hindrance than a help, I was suggesting the main. But the premise of VAR, I still agree with. And I just think it needs, it needs tweaking and simplifying, basically. So, so no, I, I wouldn't shelve it. And, and I mean, is that, is that happening or, or is that just something yeah, that's, that's been the, that, that, That's a, a suggestion that okay. for the rest of this season, such as it is, the VAR, there is the option to, to shelve it. Yeah. I just, well, yeah. I, again, it's another change of the rules to this season, isn't it? And that I think will be controversial. Look, you, you're just as likely, aren't you, to have a goal, a controversial goal decide... Promotion, relegation, in, you know, qualification for the Champions League behind closed doors or whatnot, as as you would be normally. So, yeah, do we want those injustices to to happen? I don't know. I, yeah, I I don't get that one personally, but but yeah, we're all different. Okay, what about we? the other the other suggestion, Seb, that we now be allowed five substitutes now? I look at that as yet another indication of the modern game's bias towards bigger clubs who, by definition, have got more players, then they've got greater opportunity and greater depth. What do you think? Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think we've got to be really careful with stuff like that because although it's being introduced as a short-term measure with some you know, very sound reasoning behind it, medically, I'm sure it makes plenty of sense with the sort of the minimal recovery period between games, bigger clubs who that would favour will use this as a precedent going forward. It's like anything, Mike. Anything that happens now will be 
almost a test case. So if it's, I don't know, using 3D technology to give people access to a specific seat in the stadium, for instance, people will use these things regardless of this kind of slightly surreal world in which we exist at the moment. And it's very dangerous because if you look at the benches of the top four clubs in England versus that of the, you know, the bottom four, that is another vast disparity and another means by which the game become can can grow more unequal. It has to happen, but I think it has to happen with a, a caveat which is placed on it now, which is this is not going to exist in the future because it, there is no it's real not reason good for, for the spectacle. No, 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 I agree. I agree. I agree. I think the spectacle is it will be will be impact would have an impact negatively. I mean, we all remember international friendlies where you could just make a raft of changes. It was it killed it killed it, didn't it? Too many substitutions, in oh, my I opinion, yeah. it kills the flow of a football match. And I think the strategy of only having three substitutes to put on it, it makes a difference. I think the way that managers use those substitutions can swing games. I find that one of the most interesting or an interesting part of football. To have five, I just think, yeah, it, it takes the skill out of it in a way. And and also, I'll be honest, I don't think it's I don't think it's necessary. I mean, okay, we're playing in the summer. Okay, the players haven't had a full full preseason, but I'm sure we could get by with 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 the normal substitution rules. I'm not sure about it. Hmm. Like if I could. Just use your experience as a former player here. Mm. I get the impression very much that players are being used as guinea pigs. Um, now, I think probably if we're all honest, um, you know, listeners as well, we all secretly had that little dream, didn't we, as kids, that we'd be a professional footballer. Thankfully, I rose no further than the <laughs> fifth division of the Watford Sunday League. I was a desperately bad centre-half. <laughs> don't and don't I, knock it, Mike. Thank, yeah. Sorry? Decent level, that. Uh, well, you know, um, well, at least we had 11 <laughs> players occasionally. That was about it, really. Uh, and, and about five of them were sober, so it wasn't too bad. Um, I, I don't know. You know, luckily, I knew my way around the alphabet, so we could. I had. I got involved in the game in another way. But if I were a professional footballer today, aware of the privilege of that job is, that that job is, I'm not sure I'd go back. Would you? Mm, it, well, a lot of players are definitely going to be hesitant. They need reassuring. At the moment, I, I think that footballers around the country feel used and they feel that they're being taken advantage of. And probably most of all, they feel that they're not being listened to. It's as if their view their opinion doesn't really matter because they're earning X amount, they're employees, they're just going to have to accept it and get on with it. So there may be an uprising. There may well be an uprising to say, look, hang on, is anyone going to listen to us? If there is no football, if we don't want to play, if we don't feel safe enough to play. So don't write that off. Don't write off the possibility of players threatening a boycott here. Don't write it off. Um, personally, hey, hey, I, I, yeah, go on. Go on, Seb. So I just had a question for you, mate, because from a player's perspective, if mm. you were still playing now and this situation exists, what happens if the general public, you know, yeah. as a majority, are going back to work and the footballers are making that argument? Isn't that going to be a very, very difficult one to sell? Uh, yeah, but they're going back to work in a social distancing way, aren't they? Or are they meant to be in terms of... No, of, of course they are, but yeah. that's the kind of nuance that sort mm. of tends to get lost in this type of situation. Mm. I completely agree with your mm. point. Like it's a, it's a different type of work. Yeah. 
and, and players are sort of uniquely exposed to the virus in their environment but yeah. it's going to be public relations wise it's going to be really difficult for them it um, is, given is, that they're still being paid yeah i yeah. yeah i do i do agree and 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 the bottom line is i think that they will play but they just need reassuring and and to be listened to in in the short term. Personally, I would probably be of the mindset that I'd be desperate to play to get out there to do my job, and and to to get things done. Especially if I was at the top end of a table to earn promotion, or if I was at the bottom to survive. That that there would be a burning desire to do that. And I would probably this is me being too trusting of people. I probably would be one of those that just trusts that we would be tested often enough that every stadium would be probably the safest place you could be in the country at, at that particular moment. And, and, and yeah, I would probably go along with it, but, but there are certain players that would, would hesitate. And look, if they do, I don't think we can force them to play. It might be that, that some manager have to work with, with depleted squads. We'll have to, we'll have to wait and see, but, but yeah, every footballer will, will look at this differently. Personally, I think, I think that life is going to be all about, Life until we have a vaccine is going to be a series of calculated risks. And I think that footballers will be told that and say that this is your calculated risk. We're going to make it as safe as we possibly can. One or two of you may may contract the virus, but that could happen outside as well if if, if you weren't playing. That's That will be the message I think sold to them. Yeah, well, that's the nub of the issue, isn't it? Because, you know, I think we we expect that, Players and key staff will be tested for coronavirus probably from Thursday. Results expected back in about 24 hours. Then that would probably allow training to begin in small groups from next Monday. Now, you know, we go back to the issue even over the weekend. You know, we had those two players at Dynamo Dresden, the Bundesliga 2 club. There was a third player from Brighton who's now also tested positive. As you said, Aid, there's going to be more people tested positive. How many, Seb, is too many? Oh, goodness. Um, <laughs> I. <laughs> it's a bit early on a Monday for that kind of question, Mike. Um, well, yeah, okay, I, well, okay, I, I'll I, give you an answer to my own question and see what you think. Okay. Of it. I yeah. think, frankly, one player is, is too much. Yeah, well, I I think I agree with that because it, the thing is, is that one player, where does that one player go? Who is he exposed to? What type of people are in contact with him? And what is the risk to them? You see, I, I don't really understand viral infections well enough to answer this because I, as far as I'm concerned, if someone contracts this, and as we've seen with the Dresden situation, so that entire squad has gone into quarantine and the non-playing staff for two weeks, which means... They're going to miss their first fixture, which means what for the Bundesliga 2 calendar? So from a practical standpoint, one is always going to be too many because it's never just one. It's never one person contracting in complete isolation. And it's never one person contracting and then being exposed to nobody before the diagnosis can take place, as far as I understand. So, yeah, you'd have to be right, surely. I suppose the other thing that, Again, we go back to what we were talking about earlier, the culture of no compromise. One of the things that the Premier League are apparently pushing for, there was a very good piece on the Training Guru website today, where the Premier League want clubs to share their performance data. Now, I can't see that happening. Can you? Mm. No. What's the the thinking behind this? 
Well, I, I suppose it's one. It's it's an extension of the well. We're all in it together, chaps. Yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, I can't see. There's so much. Yeah. Not espionage, but yeah, secrecy and protection. Of, espionage. Of, of, yeah, not espionage. <laughs> protection. A, yeah, f- football clubs were, were, they're, they're paranoid enough, aren't they? They they, they like to, you go to any training ground, you see the gates, you see you see, you see the security staff. It's it's yeah, they they will protect their own information. That is for sure, and they'll go to, to a lot of lengths to do that. Yeah, again, I, I don't I don't really see that there's enough benefit. From, from sharing that kind of data to, to persuade people to do it, if I'm honest. And on Going back to your previous question, it, it is really awkward, isn't it? Because if you can, if that person can be isolated straight away. I mean, if, if one person on a, on, a, on a test, and everyone will probably get tested at the same time, one comes back positive and only one comes back positive, does that, does that not mean that everyone else is okay? In which case, that person just stays out of it for, t- for two weeks and, and everyone else will hopefully be okay. Well, I wouldn't have thought so. If, if you know, if, if the three of us were in a room changing together, you know, a, a god-awful vision that, by the way, but if we were um, and one of us uh, was tested positive, um, the other two would have to self-isolate. Now, you know, if, the, if you're in a changing room and you are a group of, you know, 20 guys in a changing room and, you know, some of the training ground tra- changing grounds are pretty small, aren't they? The, you know, the, the implication is, and I suppose we've seen it with, with Dresden, who basically said, well, look, two players have tested positive, so we can't play. You know, basically the whole kit and caboodle will have to stop. Yeah, again, it, it depends how quickly it shows up on a test as well, doesn't it? You know, in, in terms of how long you would have to self-isolate for because if you could get another test in quickly enough then you can find out can't you whether you've caught it or not the earliest opportunity so none of us really know enough about about the virus and how it all works I guess to to speak with with any great authority on that but yeah once once players do start going down with it during the season or the resumption of the season then, then it could be chaos. Yeah. It's... What happens, guys, if, if if a club starts to use this tactically? So I know I know I'm being a bit conspiratorial here, yeah. but what happens if Premier League comes back and we get back into a kind of competitive state of mind where all kinds of things are on the table? Now, what if player X from Club Y has a, a tight hamstring and they've got a crucial game in four days' time that's going to decide their season, their European qualification or their relegation, their survival? Now. If these tests are being carried out by club doctors, then what's to stop someone saying, "Oh, sorry, we've got we've we, we, we've we've got a positive here. We're going to have to bump this back three weeks' time." Because logically, in a real world scenario, you'd say that's ridiculous. But then you think, "Well, it's football. It's football, and football football does does what it wants most of the time, and it finds a way." I mean, you, uh, I, I hate to say it, but you, you can. You're a devious man, Seb. Seb, you're a devious character. I didn't. I didn't well, realise. I, I I would only just uh, record uh, the fact uh, that Dynamo Dresden are facing relegation from Bundesliga 2. I just present that fact to you. you know. I'll leave you well, to make your own mind up. My future wife is a St. Pauli fan and she has no love for Dresden whatsoever. So I'm sure she's behind my little <laughs> conspiracy there. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, as you know, by by the weekend, we're all going to be Bundesliga experts because it's coming back actually on BT Sport as well. 
there is no doubt that people are missing football pretty badly. This is confession time for both of you. Did you watch the K-League stream at the weekend? Two million people did. (laughs) Seb? I didn't start watching. I tuned in just in time to see a player get absolutely clattered by a red card tackle. And it was just wonderful. Like, I I hope the guy's okay. Because he he got, he got, (laughs) it was high, it was late, studs were showing. I mean, he cut him in half. But it was so good to see it. I, I, I know that sounds terrible, but it was just it was just a relief, just a, a solid, awful tackle. I've seen one for six weeks. Brilliant. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and then a couple of minutes later, I saw a 41-year-old centre-half score the, the game's only goal. It was weird, though, wasn't it? It was very echoey and strange, and uh, I, I, I don't know. That's I, what I, you, I need. you need. You need to put crowd noise into the stadium. That's, that's, such, a, that's such an Arsenal solution to things. <laughs> Talking of crown noise in and Korea, did you see that the Korean baseball started this week as well? And I think it was the Dinos who actually had literal life-size cardboard cutouts of fans behind the plate. And it looked absurd. All these fans had masks on. <laughs> um, it just looked ridiculous. And I could see that being a an absolute comedy show if we did something similar in I football. don't know I mean the, the mask I mean if you're going to have a, a life-size cut out of a fan I, I, I don't see the logic of really putting the mask on it but yeah well look Bundesliga are doing this aren't they the uh, Gladbach have, have done this but they've, they've done it in a really positive way because fans are are paying for them and some of the the proceeds I think it's a non not not pro, not for profit kind of venture and some of the proceeds are going to to the charities and, and whatnot so so they're, they're making money in in a good kind of way and i've seen the, the images of it at munchen gladback and okay it's not real fans we know we know they're cardboard cutouts i don't know something about it it's a little bit like the piping in the crowd noise it's better than empty seats it's better than pure silence or better than hearing players swear so yeah i again i'm not I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be against it, and don't be surprised if Premier League teams adopt that. By the way, I think I think they they might do do something similar, rather than than just showing you know thousands of of empty seats. But look, the German football back on BT Sport is great, isn't it? I mean, I, I do like the Bundesliga. It's a, it's a great division. So yeah, I, I didn't tune into the K League because basically, with two children under four, I I got zero spare time. This is about the only respite I get all week. <laughs> chatting to you guys so, so watching the k-league stream it was, it was not possible but but i will try and catch some of the, the bigger games on the bundesliga for sure yeah i've i've got a, a confession to make that will probably get me into all manner of domestic problems <laughs> i actually missed the k-league uh, because i was uh dying my wife's hair in the back garden <laughs> It was it was a mer- an act of mercy on my behalf. We're, so, we're, um, we're not here to judge you, Mike. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> no, you'll be sleeping uh, in your car by Thursday. Michel's uh, uh, salon uh, opened and was a roaring success. Was it? Okay. We, if yeah, I was going to say you could come, you could come and help us out at this end, but but yeah, we'd have to do it from a distance, wouldn't we? Yeah, it's not going to work. Uh, yeah, well, I, I can I can look down the um, the ether, mate, and see your beard at the moment. You are. 
basically Father Christmas, but there we are. <laughs> Outrageous. Okay, okay, right. So we will, uh, I think, focus on the individual games in the Bundesliga on Thursday, but I just want to ask one general point to you first, Seb. What's your view of German football and its influence on the English game? Obviously, it's it's primarily through you know, managers like you know, Klopp and Wagner and Farker. What are we are we influenced by the game over there, and what what is the relationship between the Premier League and the Bundesliga? I think we look at it quite enviously, Mike. I think the Bundesliga has a, a great technical influence on English football, or has done, in the managers that we've imported. But culturally, in terms of fan ownership and influence over clubs, it doesn't have enough agency over British football. I've never actually been to a Bundesliga game, but I, I went just before the lockdown. I went to. Tottenham's game in Leipzig, which is obviously a slightly different case, but the atmosphere in German in, in German stadiums seems to be absolutely fantastic. And we can apply all sorts of diagnoses for that, but I think one of them is it costs less than it does here. Fans seemingly feel more involved in in, in not just in in sort of the, the, the team and the, the the players put on the field, but also the direction of the club. I'll always go back to a Jurgen Klopp anecdote about when he became Borussia Dortmund boss and he he actually he met with the club ultras, the, the supporters, or the equivalent of a supporters trust out there. And I remember thinking, God, that would just never happen in England, would it? Just never, ever happen in England because you have this, you seem to you seem to have this separation in England between fans and, and club, which, I mean, I'm sure there is a bit of it in Germany, but um, doesn't need to, be, it doesn't appear to be nearly as wide. And so I am in this. I, I think also there's, there's oddities, like you, you can drink in the stadium and German football seems to smell of bratwurst and beer and, you know, people smoke. It's it's a wonderful atmosphere in yeah. the concourses. And I don't know if it was just Leipzig. I, I accept they are a bit of an outlier as a club, so I don't want to judge German football on one experience in one, one city. But uh, I just remember enjoying myself in a way that I typically don't in English stadiums. Yeah, I've done a lot of co-commentaries on the Bundesliga in the past and, and the atmosphere is, is great at all the, all the grounds. You're absolutely right. I think fan engagement is as amazing in in Germany and maybe that has to do with the fact that that, that all I think all of the clubs have to have you know some kind of fan fan yeah, involvement 50, don't they? 50 plus one ownership exactly yeah. so 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 that I think is an example of of how that's working you're right it's it's cheaper to get in I also love and I'm envious about the the, the emphasis on youth they're not that they will they will use younger players won't they we've seen that with J- Jaden Sancho there's there's a real emphasis on on attacking football as well. You see a lot of goals in the Bundesliga. So yeah, there's a lot I think that the Premier League can can learn from them. Aside from just pinching some of their best coaches, I think I think there's there's, a, there's one other really interesting point, and this comes partly from my own experience, but partly from people I've met and people I've spoken to and things that I've read. The culture around fans is different. The way fans are treated, instead of in English football less so than they used to be. Fans are still treated like a little bit of a disease by the public at large, by authorities, by government. And that manifests in all sorts of ways, one of them being transport links. And it seems like, you know, in Germany, there's an eagerness to make the day pleasurable, for it to be a day out. It's easy to get to a stadium. The policing isn't quite so harsh. It's it's little things which make you feel like you're not some uh, part of some terrible subculture just by going to football. Yeah, the Bundesliga treats fans like grown-ups. And what better example than the fact that they're not worried about neutral venues. They're saying, no, you play the games at your own stadiums. They have trust that the clubs 
will each each individual host club will do all that they can to to remind fans not to come to the stadium and that they trust that they will behave and I'm sure there will be a cordon around you know with maybe volunteers that are, that are blocking off people for, from entering the theater, entering the vicinity they are treat they are treating their own supporters with respect I don't understand why why in this country every football club can't have their, their their match played on their their own ground and that they aren't trusted to you know remind their own supporters not not to turn up i, ju- I just yeah, think that's the key word isn't it yeah. like, trust yeah. and and there is so little of that in the english game i'm a refugee from fleet street so i come from a certain culture now the drinking that i've seen at german matches is heroic <laughs> you know you're talking about guys getting getting three or four pints inside them every half, each half. So basically the, the, the health and safety lobby over here would throw their hands up in horror at that. And, and to be honest, certain fan bases, you know, I shuddered to think what they would do with that amount of alcohol inside them. I think the other key thing about the German game is that, and we've mentioned it, is the culture of a fan engagement. Now, that's a very sort of loose, airy-fairy, blue-sky thinking, marketing type of phrase. But what it means, it means an emotional commitment to your football club. So in that context, I know we've spoken a couple of episodes ago about heroes. And I've still got a load on files of, of, of listeners who've come in and talked about their own heroes. I want to just maybe come up with a couple more today. Alan Mabry suggests Roy Keane. And he says that it is another player, a bit like Kevin Keegan, who overcame being small. And I can remember seeing a couple of photographs of Keane playing for Nottingham Forest. And he looks about 13. It's amazing. Roy Keane, Seb, discuss. Hated him. Hated him, (laughs) hated him, hated him. But then I think I was supposed to. Because Keane, to me... Um, he evolved to become everything that I envied and disliked about Manchester United, and I suppose that's a compliment, isn't it? Well, the one thing I will say is I, I don't think I don't think he he quite gets the credit for the player that he was technically. I think all the other stuff, the attitude, the discipline, the authority over his teammates, I think that has become not too much of his, uh, a part of his legend, but it has consumed almost everything else. This is a very very good footballer first and foremost, and that's why he joined Manchester United. But yeah, horrible, horrible, horrible player to play against. And just the kind of the kind of player that, um, I, I don't know, you just, as an opposition fan, you just detested, which is probably exactly how he wanted it. Yeah, I think he forfeits hero status on the basis of what he did to, to his Ireland teammates at the World Cup. I mean, leaving them in the lurch. I know that there are reasons and that there was a big, you know, there's a big spark spark up but but a bit of self-control there I don't know I just, I just feel like he let down his teammates in that particular example I've also just recently analysed the game the classic game where Arsenal won the double at Old Trafford uh, in 2002 with Will Todd scoring <laughs> goodness me there was a challenge on 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 Patrick Vieira that that had he connected with Patrick Vieira would have would have broken about five ribs it was a karate kick. So yeah, look, it's not 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 my type of hero, I'm afraid, Alan. Um, but but I, 
what you could say about him, he, he gave everything for the badge whenever he went onto the football pitch, and, and and you know fans want to see that, don't they? Okay, let's think about one of the, I suppose, the Renaissance men of of British football, suggested by Andy Russell, Pat Nevin. Andy says, look, here's a majestic player who physically bucked the trend of the eighties and the nineties. He was different to his peers with his music and his interest in the arts. Also, he signed my copy of Viz while we were Anglo-Italian <laughs> cupping it in 1992. You've got to love someone like that, haven't you, Seb? <laughs> Absolutely. I, you know, that, that, that point about physical difference is really pertinent because if you look at footage of Pat Nevin now, he looks so slight in relation to the, to the players he's playing against. And also probably because the pitches are still a little bit agricultural and he just looks, he looks a little bit too frail to be playing. But yeah, I didn't, I'm, I'm not old enough to have seen him play regularly, but uh, also uh, fantastic broadcaster, Pat Nevin. Just a really interesting guy, uh, like a, a, a really compelling voice of modern football now, which you probably never would have guessed 20 years ago. But I, I thoroughly enjoy and listening to him and the highlights you can dig out. He's a, he was a player. Yeah, very intelligent guy. Yeah, I, uh, I love him as a broadcaster too. I think he's excellent. Yeah, he was just unusual. Yeah, but he, he, he was very, very smart. I think he was pulled out of university, wasn't he, to to have a career in professional football north of the border. And one one thing that you may not know is that is that I, I think it stemmed from from a game when he was younger. He basically promised his dad, who used to go and watch him every time he played, he used to promise him that he'd. He'd go on at least one mazy dribble, one sort of really carefree playground style dribble, because he wanted to stay true to to that sort of uh, that playground feel where you, you don't have that that pressure on your shoulders. He wanted to to play with freedom, and yeah, every game he would do he would do at least one crazy mazy dribble, and he'd look up to the stands just to just to to, to see his dad and just say, "Yeah, there you go, dad. That one was for you," which which I kind of love. Yeah, me too, me too. You know, as you know, we, we're talking about tournament football a lot in these podcasts. I've sort of stretched the the concept a little bit today. I want us to talk about the World Under-20 Championships in 2017, which was won by England. And maybe look at a progress report on that team, because what always fascinates me about youth football is the way that, that some careers flourish, others are abbreviated, players you think who are going to make it don't quite train on. That squad, when we look at it, you know, from the perspective of a couple of seasons on, probably conforms to that pattern. You know, you've got the goalkeepers are very strong. You know, Freddie Woodman, who has been, you know, he's, he's the godson of Gareth Southgate, came through the ranks at Palace as, I think, probably next season, whenever that is, will be Newcastle's senior goalkeeper. He kept Dean Henderson out of that team. You've got people like uh, Kikeo Tomori, who has broken through at uh, Chelsea. John Joe Kenny, who is flourishing in, in Germany. Someone like Lewis Cook, who I know Gareth Southgate really rates. Uh, your club aid, Ashley, Ashley Maitland-Niles. There are players who are coming through. And probably, let's look at the strikers, if we could, at the start, Seb. Adam Ola Lookman, uh, Everton paid £7.5 million for him, scored almost with his first touch in the Premier League against Man City, if I remember rightly. Not quite done it, has he? Whereas Dominic Calvert-Lewin, 
is really flourishing under Carlo Ancelotti. And conversely, Dominic Solanke, who if you were... And I, at that time, I was doing quite a lot of work in, in the youth football. Everyone was basically saying, this guy is a cert. Got a big move away from Anfield to Bournemouth and has basically pretty much disappeared without trace. Those strikers tell you about the inherent uncertainty of football, don't they? Yeah, they're, they're a really interesting case study into the variables that occur to that, that, that are inflicted upon a player at that age. So I remember watching that um that under seventeen tournament. Um and Solanke, I think was he was the golden boy or whatever the equivalent award was at the tournament, whatever it was called. He was awarded the best player medal. And I think if you'd have asked anyone of those three players who are the two that you're most sure about, it would be Solanke and Lookman. And Calvert Lewin, by contrast, I think it I was thinking about this last night when when I was looking at our little um our rundown. And it's interesting because he's an example of, of something that people take for granted. It's like when a, when a player first appears, whether it be in youth football or you know in the Premier League or whatever, you kind of tricked into believing that's the finished product. The player in front of you is more or less what he'll be for the rest of his career. And Calvert-Lewin is the one of the three who's really added bits to his game, who's really become a better finisher. I mean, he was always pretty good in the air, but he's become absolutely excellent at a senior level. And for someone like Lookman, I, I still don't quite understand what's behind his trajectory, what is behind his issues. I know that he was disappointed in not being allowed to leave and head back to Leipzig last year. Um, and that obviously set him back at Everton. I don't think he got on with Marco Silva. And Solanke, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I feel like I should should mount a little bit of a defence for him because I think Solanke is still a pretty good player. He just doesn't score any goals. And when you're a centre forward, that's a problem. I think he does a lot of good things, but... Whether he'll ever be a goal scorer, I'm not sure. I, I don't. I don't know that he's a Premier League player. I, I, I think he's, he's. Yeah. Sorry, Ed, you go ahead. No, I was just going to say it, it's a reminder. Uh, you look at the the eleven that that played in that World Cup final against Venezuela. It's, it's a reminder that that the years sort of eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty one. So much can change. You can be a world beater, literally a world beater at, at eighteen, and then you can be playing in in League One. Or, or lower by the by the time you're 22 it, it happens there are so many other factors and that's why to stay at the top of football is is an incredibly difficult challenge that was that was a brilliant team at that time but but of them I mean they're all having decent careers don't get me wrong but of them Tamuri and and Calvert-Lewin are, are the only ones that you would say are, are, are sort of destined to win many, many caps for the for England team. I'm not sure about any any of the others. And a number of them are already sort of on that lone trail here, there and everywhere, including in the championship. So, so look, so much so much can happen. And, and I was looking at the, the under-17s that, that won the tournament, uh, you know, the same year. And they've got more exciting names potentially with Foden and Hudson-Odoi, Sessegnon, Gibbs-White, people like that. But... But again, a couple of the players from, from that, uh, Rian Brewster, a couple of the players from, from that team are already sort of at that age now, 19, 20, where they're probably not going to make it. They're not going to make it as Premier League players. And, you know, that includes the captain who's on loan in Holland at the moment from City. So, yes, yeah, so much can change in, in such a short space of time. But look, what a golden summer it was, Mike. Wasn't it? I absolutely loved it. So England, two England junior teams, you know, ruling the world. I'm unreal. Well, it certainly set the tone, and I think it probably 
energised and uh, gave a certain amount of selectorial freedom to Gareth Southgate because, you know, obviously one of the great definitions of his reign as England manager is his ability or his capacity to give young players their their heads. And I think when we when we come to analyse the last sort of five years of, of the English game, maybe, you know, looking back from a World Cup final in 2022, let's say, this was where it all started. And the intriguing thing is, where's it going to finish? Yeah, uh, where's it going to finish? Hopefully, it'll finish with World Cup glory <laughs> uh, sometime in the not-too-distant future. We've got some great talents coming through. We really have. And and I do think that, there's, yeah, a lot of good work is being done in, in the academies. I know we, we've sort of not clashed over, you know, EPPP in the past, but, but the pros and cons to it. And, and, and I do think that we're developing better technical footballers and I do think that, that that they're more rounded coming coming up to a certain age but at the same time there are definite cons with that with with playing so much football so young and, and look again you but I, I'm probably a case in point really in terms of my own career I played for England schoolboys I played for the England under 18s and I probably peaked then I, I, you know I got into the Arsenal first team at around 20. And then by the time I was 23, 24, I was playing in, playing in the lower leagues. Now, it, it, it just happens. It, it, it just, not everyone's got that stability because you, so, you need so many strands to you as a person and as a player in terms of ability, physicality, luck with injuries, with the mental side of the game, how, how strong you are mentally. That luck with managers and scenarios and certain situations, so many things can go against you. That that we, we ruled the world that that particular summer, but it might it might only be the case that two or three of those guys to end up being household names of the future. That and uh, you know, it's just the way of the world, isn't it? Really, uh, it doesn't guarantee it doesn't guarantee us to win the World Cup in five years' time. It really doesn't. But 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 I do think that that Southgate is the right manager to to try and blood the best young players. Yeah, I I think you know the rule of thumb uses usually is two players per per squad really making it through and and, and you know getting to the next level. Time's beaten us yet again. I just want to go through our thoughts for the day. Can I start with you, Seb? Um, what would you like to talk about very briefly? I want to have a little moan, actually, Mike. I am um, so over the last month or so. I've realised I'm not capable of rewatching 90 minute reruns of games that I remember. Yeah, me neither. TV. Yeah, yeah. It, it's really interesting. Like it can be a really compelling game. It can be a three two, four three, four four, whatever. But actually, the virtue and nostalgia is in the stuff that you have no recollection of. So. My thought for the day is more of a, a kind of a plea for the week, which is TV companies, can you put on a few sort of dull goalless draws or the occasional 1-1 <laughs> one, one from a Saturday 3pm? Just because, honestly, it's getting to the point where like, I think I'd be more engaged by that just because it's a little bit more of an authentic experience. So if someone could, if someone could hook me up, that might, that might get me through the next month or so. <laughs> uh, good luck with that one, mate. Good luck uh, with that one. Uh, <laughs> archive fatigue. Is that what they call that? I don't know. I think that, I think, I think that's a diagnosis. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, on, on that theme then, uh, I've, some of the work I'm doing for Arsenal at the moment is analysing some, some classic matches. I did Palmer 94 with the, with the Cup Winners Cup final. I did, 
did that game in 2002 uh, at Manchester United. And it just served me, served as a reminder, really, of what football used to be like compared to, to what it is now. And the standout from watching those two games in detail was the tackling. So many more tackles were permitted uh, in terms of, of aggressive, full-on tackles. Some from behind, which, which were borderline disgraceful. But in the two matches that I watched, no one was injured, thankfully. But as a spectacle, I'm telling you now, it was more engaging because there was a real physicality to the game as well as the skill. And I think that football has always been a game where you have to blend power, strength, you know, physicality with guile and creativity and skill and all the flair, all those things we treasure so much. Uh, and and it, it's just made me feel that the modern game right now is maybe gone tipped a little bit too far over the other side in terms of the clinical nature. Some of the rule changes, I think, have diminished the spectacle of watching a football match. And, and look, can we ever go back? To, to, to being a little bit looser with, with our officiating of the game. I don't know. But personally, maybe I'm in the minority here, personally, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be against it. Yeah, I can remember Michael Oliver saying recently that had he been refereeing the 1970 FA Cup final, he'd, he'd have uh, given 12 red cards. <laughs> um, you know, this is a day and a week uh, that will define football's future in many ways. But we shouldn't forget the past. It holds lessons and it reminds us that the game is about people. 35 years ago today, 56 people lost their lives in the Bradford fire disaster. Those of us of a certain age can vividly remember those horrific images of death and destruction at Valley Parade. Survivors have had to deal with physical or mental damage in the years since. Like Hillsborough, Bradford reminds us that no one should go to a football match and never return. Thanks to you for joining us here and please stay safe out there. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Some places take you away. Some bring you together. Marathon does both. Marathon is Florida's family key with something for everyone. You'll find museums and wildlife refuges, wide open beaches, miles of warm, clear water, and the historic Seven Mile Bridge. For more about Marathon and the latest safety protocols, visit flakeys.com slash marathon. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.